My, my good people of the internet, it looks like Christmas is finally here. And I got some of my guests here to help me help you spread a little holiday love. Good luck. <laughs> oh, well, I know here at the Higher Side Chats, we couldn't be more giddy about it. And why not celebrate the corporate-driven season of spending with a gift that, oh, so ironically, spits right in the face of the Christmas machine with the sweet, sweet softness of a t-shirt for the rebellious fashionista in your life from my little clothing brand over at Conspiracies.net. This is one of the most degrading things that anyone could possibly do. Uh, thanks, Freeman. Or better yet, give them the gift that gives all year long with a subscription to THC Plus for one of your oh-so-precious friends and family. I know that's what Jim Mars is doing, right, man? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence myself. <laughs> Guys, this is not constructive. Duncan Trussell, help me out here. If I were Satan, the first idea I'd want to implant into their heads is... Okay, that's not what I had in mind either, but if you know someone who enjoys THC, just go to the HiresideChatsPlus.com with any credit or debit card and put in the email address and information for that special someone in your life rather than yourself. I know I and all the great guests on THC would really appreciate it. We don't want to kill anybody or hurt anybody. We want to make a system that works. Jacques, I think that approach is actually illegal. Let's not do that. It was a great idea, but it doesn't go far enough. No, man, it went too far. But guys, all I'm saying is a year or six months of THC Plus makes a great gift. Believe me, I just signed Douglas Dietrich up for a year, and he couldn't be happier. (laughs) I love you dearly. Uh, (laughs) Yes, uh, honestly, uh, you flatter me too much. If you were a member of the opposite sex, I would propose. See what I tell you. Merry Christmas, people. And boom goes the dynamite higher side chatters from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And of all the out there topics we tend to get into around here, it's the ancient past that never seems to get old. It's chock full of fun stuff like cyclical cataclysms, giants, megalithic complexes that defy logic, underground cities, sophisticated architecture and art, fallen angels, robust shamanic traditions, and many other out of place and highly interesting elements of the big story. We really are like orphans dropped off at the fire station when it comes to understanding where we came from and the leftover stuff we do have to comb over only leaves us more confused. And ground zero for the mysterious past is Gobekli Tepe, the oldest site we know of that already kicks human civilization back further than the official story has settled on, and now appears to only be one structure in a network of similar complexes all over the area largely sandwiched between the Tigris and the Euphrates, complete with sophisticated astrological alignments, erected pillars and statues that seem really hard to maneuver without modern equipment, and a configuration that certainly seems ritualistic in nature. Well, today we're inviting back Hugh Newman, who has been keeping a close eye on the exciting new discoveries that were recently announced and even made a few discoveries of his own. He also has a new book out as part of the Wooden Book series titled 
Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tempe, the world's first megaliths, which is a nice compliment to other entries in the series he's worked on, like Earth Grids, the secret patterns of Gaia's sacred sites, and Geomancy, Earth Grids, Ley Lines, Feng Shui, Divination, Dowsing, and Dragons. Another claim to fame of his is being the man behind the wildly popular Megalithomania Conference and Megalithomania Tours. You might remember he was here a little over a year ago with his co-author Jim Vieira to talk about their book, The Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain. And it's a pleasure to have him here again, the ancient world examiner, parser of our mysterious past, and the megalithomaniac himself. Hugh, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man, I am psyched to do this. I really enjoyed the last one, and I knew both you and Jim had both done enough separate work that would be well worth going over. And here we are with the main offering on the table being Gobekli Tepe and some of the other sites around it. This is a subject I tend to put down for a while and then come back to every so often. And I think right off the bat, one of the interesting things is that When Gobekli Tepe was first being talked about, they were saying this was a unique site that was as old as it is mysterious. But now, based on the map I've seen in your presentation, there might be a dozen or more sites in that area that still need proper excavation, but also include a lot of the same elements and arrangements and motifs as seen at Gobekli Tepe, like the circular enclosures and the T-pillars, right? Yeah, there's a lot more going on there than most people realize, actually. There's a whole region now, which is like something like 200 kilometers or about 125 miles wide. They're focusing on 12 sites. This includes Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, the two main sites. But really, there are probably 30, maybe 40 that aren't really being investigated, but are kind of known about. And there's hints that are a few more. So we're looking at something vast. I mean, Gobekli Tepe is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what's going on in southeast Turkey, specifically the fact that it's so old and all of these sites go back, or 11, 12,000 years. So it's really, really compelling. Right. I wanted to talk about the dating because that's always a weird thing around here with guests who have all sorts of opinions. But conventionally, as you say, they put Gobekli Tepe at 11,600 years old which is 7,000 years before Stonehenge, five or 6,000 years before the pyramids conventionally. They say the Sumerian civilization was only founded in 4,500 BC. So this is like more than doubling the entire human timeline when it comes to civilizations that we have in the Rolodex. And we're still talking about sophisticated temples that can't really be the start of the story either because of their complexity. But What are your thoughts on the reliability of some of this dating in general? Well, when we're looking at Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe and the sites they've been researching out there, they're pretty tight. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. We have Klaus Schmidt did the first dating on the sites, and he's from the German Archaeological Institute, that they double, triple check everything. They went down to the bedrock. And so it kind of makes sense, you know, that what they found with the organic remains and wood and other things they found, that it was that age. They couldn't really get much further back than that, but they've been finding evidence earlier than that at the same sites, specifically Karahan Tepe, for instance, but not construction until around, well, at Gobekli 9,600 BC, Karahan Tepe 9,400 BC. But 
There are older sites further east up near the Tigris, like Kortik Tepe, Bonchoklutala, Griefelahoyuk, for instance. They go back to 12 to 12,500 years ago, I think, or more. You know, it gets older and older the more you look. And so the really, it really seemed to kick off with Gebekli Tepe around 9,600 BC or 11,600 years ago. When it comes to other areas around the world, there's so many claims on the age of sites and it's kind of frustrating. And I got to a point where I decided to do the subtitle of this, the world's first megaliths, just to make the point that this is the oldest dating they've actually properly archaeologically, scientifically found for megalithic structures. There's lots of claims on other ones being old, but there's no evidence. And so I wanted to kind of emphasize that in the book and in my research, I keep emphasizing that. And he, you know, even before Klaus Schmidt died, who was the head archaeologist for a long time since it began at Gebekli Tepe, he said they're going to find stuff up to 14,000 years old at Gebekli Tepe and in that region. And now we're stretching towards that date with some finds up near the Tigris. And also they're finding not settlements, but evidence of human activity, the hunter-gatherer activity around these sites as well, going back to earlier dates. So, yeah, it just seems to be getting older and older the more they look. Yeah, and that's what's so crazy about Gobekli Tepe being the oldest thing we know that humans made because there are elements of it that we would struggle to do today. These pillars are many tons from what I understand, and they're all in alignment in this circular fashion with two in the middle. There's a ritualistic kind of nature to it or a theme that looks like it's for something somewhat esoteric. and that's what's so odd because you would think that the first thing we could find that man has made would be pretty rudimentary or have a lot of imperfections in it. So to me, that just says, well, this is the oldest thing we can find, but civilization seems to have really been rocking at that point to have made something of this nature. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the fact that Quebecli Tepe is currently the kind of oldest in that kind of region around Shannon Lurfa, that area where most of the sites are being investigated. It kind of doesn't make sense. It appears like it's come out of nowhere. It seems like it's just suddenly there was this giant innovation and artistic style and stone carving technology. But you can trace it back. You can trace elements of that back to other sites. You know, even at Cortic Tepe up near the Tigris, which is at least a thousand years older, maybe one and a half thousand years older than Quebecli Tepe, they found these kind of stones that you could hold in your hand. And they had 3D relief carvings of abstract artistic figures on them. And that's one of the things we find at Gebekli Tepe starting in 11,600 years ago. And so this was at least a 1,000 years older than that. But they're smaller, but they show that they were doing that. You go back to some of the Paleolithic era caves and carvings, going back 30,000, 40,000 years, you do find 3D reliefs carved on rock walls and in caves and in shelters. Very occasionally, like France and parts of Europe. And so you, there is an element of this before Gobekli Tepe. But suddenly, to decide to build, if we just take Gobekli Tepe as an example, although only a small amount has been excavated, there's possibly 20 of these stone circle constructions with these giant T pillars. Virtually every T pillar, some of them are 18 feet tall, are carved into this beautiful shape of this huge T with these 3D relief carvings on, some in high relief, like beautiful 3D carving, with all these symbols, and it almost looks like a language, like a whole kind of system they had in place before they did it to come up with this. 
And the other thing that baffles me as well is it's really abstract, the art. They're not just carving and creating art from what they see. They're kind of going into these abstract forms, which are continuous. And they go to all the other sites. They're using the same types of T-pillars, the same kind of relief carvings, the same symbols throughout the region over a nearly 2,000-year period. And so it's really bizarre when you actually start really looking at some of the carvings they've got there. And it makes you wonder what triggered that, you know, what could trigger that kind of amazing abstract artistic style just to come and just to be so prevalent in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great points. And I've seen some estimates that some of those T pillars are up to 50 tons and you never know if what you read is accurate, but even if it's half that, I still struggle to understand how they were cut and placed. And let's get into some of the new discoveries, because I think this audience is pretty well familiar with the basics of Gobekli Tepe. But just like we found with the Easter Island statues, there were bodies underneath the heads. And just like it seems to be under Stonehenge, there's a lot more structure beneath it. And even when they were excavating Gobekli Tepe, to my understanding, they said, hey, look, we're just getting started. This is only 5% perhaps excavated, and it's an ongoing process. But in the time since we last talked, they have announced some pretty interesting things, and they made it into your new book. What are the new discoveries that have been announced that are from Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tempe, the two that make it into your new book? Yeah, for sure. Well, very recently, literally a few weeks, you know, just a short while ago, like the end of September 2023, they announced some new discoveries. Mainly, it was at Karahan Tepe. They found a new statue, which is seven and a half feet tall. So that's 2.3 meters. But it was found broken in three parts. And it had, it was like a seated human figure holding his phallus, which was sticking out quite far. But also, he had his ribs showing, a little square kind of relief on his chest arms going down the side. He had what appears to be a line going along the edge of his face between his ear and his nose, which looked like a beard line, and also what looked like a beard coming down from his lower part of his face. And he had this cool haircut. He had like almost like shaved bits down the side, and it going around. It almost looked like a helmet. The images are really compelling. And he's, the fact is he's seven and a half feet tall. This now makes it not only one of the largest, but definitely the oldest ever human statue carved anywhere on earth in this kind of 3d style you know freestanding statue so that is pretty amazing the earliest one before that was earth for man or what was called the balikligal statue and that dates to around eight and a half thousand bc whereas this is nine and a half thousand bc so it's a thousand years older at least and earth for man wasn't as detailed it was found in the middle of channel earth at a site called yemen Hali. And it was found recumbent, a bit like part of this was as well, lying on the ground. And that one was kind of bald with obsidian eyes and much simpler features. Now, both of them, though, both of them are touching their phallus. The phallus is clearly shown in the new one, especially. But also they have a V-neck motif, almost like Star Trek. And this we find on quite a few of the symbols. And we're realizing that was an important symbol, an important style they were doing back there. So you have this seven and a half foot statue. That's one of the discoveries at Karahan Tepe. There's a second statue they found right next to it, which is probably two or three feet tall. And it's this basically a vulture. It looks like a vulture sitting there, carved wings, beak. It's still kind of mostly intact. 
They also found a polished stone plate a couple of feet wide. And this is all part of a new enclosure, which they've uncovered on the top of the hill at Karahan Tepe. And again, like Gebekli, only 5% even now has been uncovered. And this new enclosure had like a whole stone, giant T-pillars, broken though, but they were in the middle. And it could be one of the largest enclosures they're going to find there. And so this was absolutely amazing. We even worked out all the alignments with Andrew Collins, who I've been working with, and JJ Ainsworth over the last few years. And it fits in with Andrew's research that it's a kind of aligned to Cygnus and Deneb and the Milky Way Dark Rift and all this kind of stuff. So that was just at Karahan Tepe. I mean, there's many other discoveries that I could talk about. Earlier this year in May, myself and JJ noted some carvings on some of the upright pillars in the main enclosure at Karahan Tepe, these carvings that no one had recorded before. We happened to catch them when the light was at a certain angle and you could actually see them. So we were quite pleased about that. Obviously, the winter solstice discovery we found in December 2021. But the brand new discovery at Quebecly Tepe, I'll just quickly describe this. They found this life-size boar statue, like 3D statue. And it's amazing. It looks so cool. And that was found in Enclosure D, the main enclosure, next to the whole stone there, which is towards the north-northwest. And that was found to have paint, like red, white, and black pigment on it. So that now they're realizing, oh, these statues all could have been painted. So that gives a whole other complexion to the site. Also, whilst they are uncovering that area, they also discovered a slab below it, like a thin megalith, almost like a T-pillar fallen over and used as a kind of seat. And on the edge of that was these beautiful serpents and an H symbol and a little serpent head on it as well. And further round to one side of it, to the right of this, what they uncovered was another giant hold stone, like a porthole stone, like heading again to the north. But this was like a fallen T-pillar on its edge. So it was like kind of this, you know, but on its edge, rather than upright, it had fallen directly to the one side and had a hole carved in it going to the north again. So these are just discoveries they've announced now. There's lots of other little things coming out. There's lots of little artifacts that have been found at Karahan Tepe, but they've not ended up in the museum because that's currently closed because of the flooding that happened this year. But yeah, so this is just the tip of the iceberg because there's more discoveries at sites like Saybirch. We've found things at sites like Ayanlahoyak, another one of the sites. You know, we've found various things. There's discoveries being made on the ground at sites that haven't even begun to be excavated yet. So this is really the time of discovery this is like going into egypt in the 17 1800s it's like going in the jungles of the maya in the 17 1800s this is like the time when people are now discovering people are now uncovering these sites so it's an exciting time for sure yeah that's a really great summary it's very exciting these sites are all over some of them i haven't even heard of it's hard to keep up it wasn't so hard to keep up five years ago there was only a handful of places and mysterious things people were looking at. But now there might be 40 sites in this region. Let's go back to that statue, because now we have this statue that is the oldest we know of, and it's seven feet, six inches. And the Urfa man statue is five feet, some odd inches, very accurate human height. Well, you are the guy who has written about giants. Do you think this seven foot, six inch statue 
is intentionally that height. I mean, that qualifies it as a giant statue. Yeah, it does. I mean, I love it. I mean, it's made my day. And Jim's, you were like, yeah, proof of at least stone giants. But yeah, I think it's compelling because it's like, you know, one of the things that Andrew and I and JJ and others have noted, if you start looking into all the myths of the Anunnaki, the Nephilim, they're all from this kind of region. And there are legends of giants, you know, creating these sites. These are the stories that kind of biblical Book of Enoch kind of things. And so are we seeing, you know, someone actual size because if earth of man or a biblical statue was actual size like he was five foot nine or you know 1.8 meters then perhaps it's a little clue towards that now those skeletons are being found to back it up although we know human remains have been found at some of the sites this year they haven't announced that yet we actually saw them at one of the sites being excavated we were very lucky to see that so we know human remains are being found, but they don't really publish too much about that. But yeah, so who knows if this is a seven foot six realistic statue of someone at the site, maybe one of the builders, one of the astronomer priests, whatever you want to call them, then that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, it would. And no doubt these statues and sites are interesting, but sometimes I think that we romanticize the past or we put a lot on this stuff. And sometimes I wonder if it really was a little more mundane, like people just being people as we are today. Sometimes you'll read conventional accounts and they'll say, well, look at this. It shows that man's consciousness was evolving and they were wrestling with their acknowledgement. And it's like, you don't really know what's going on in man's mind. I tend to think that man's mind has been somewhat the same going back all this time. What do I know, though? But we have these two statues where guys are holding their phallus. And I, in your book, there are some really great images that kind of show what would this site look like if there were people around. And there's one in particular where there's a guy sitting in between the T pillars, and it almost looks like they're dividers of some type. And you could look at the center as like a center stage. And you got these guys holding their phallus. I'm thinking... Maybe this was like some ancient strip club or nudie booth or brothel or something. Boys will be boys, you know? And we think that it's like some magical place. I'm just like, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a, just another smut den from a man's history. And that could explain why it was intentionally buried if some puritanical authority figure was like, we got to get that out of here. Now, I know there's a lot of details I'm kind of glossing over to make that guess, but I think about today's world, if it got wiped away and then years later, people were examining our ruins, they might find some footprints in the mud and say, wow, look at those ancient people, you know, us being the ancient people. They walked around with sacred geometry on the bottoms of the soles of their shoes. They must have been so enlightened. And it's like, no, nobody knows what that is. They just bought some shoes. So I think sometimes that can happen. What are your thoughts on the prospect that maybe? it isn't so special or maybe it's a little more explainable by man's nature <laughs> and and maybe for their world it really was just a a mundane place of sorts well i think you got a brilliant new theory to write about there greg <laughs> I, I like it yeah i'm getting <laughs> on really it <laughs> well it's one of the things that myself and jj have been writing about although we kind of the fact that you mentioned people sitting around the edge you mentioned it being like a kind of dance space almost or a performance space 
because they have very flat horizontal surfaces, sometimes carved out of bedrock like we find at Caravan Tepe now, which is insane. And we get it in Gebekli and all the other sites. They have these very huge flat surfaces. So I believe that there was dancing, there was performance. The acoustics now backing that up with the elliptical shapes of them. Tests have been carried out. If people standing in the middle, and so, you know, the voice echoes through the whole space, the whole kind of enclosure, if you're standing in the middle. And like the whole stones could be where you kind of shout out from or sing from. And it could be part of the whole tradition there. Now, whether it's like a strip club or whether it's like a kind of more fertility site, which is more like what we're thinking, because the whole winter solstice discovery we made kind of fits in with this as well. Obviously, all the phallic symbolism, but we also have feminine symbolism as well. There's these cup marks, which are known as this is what JJ's been researching. They're, they're like kind of a goddess, kind of receptacles to gather water and moisture from the dew in the air at night and things like this. Also have what's called the vulva stone on the opposite side of the site of Karahan Tepe. The whole stones, feminine symbolism, things like this. Even the name of Karahan Tepe originally was called Ketchley Tepe. And Ketchley, the K-E-C of it, is actually in Kurdish language, is I think is to do with a feminine principle like girl, woman, goddess, female, things like this. And so even the original name, which goes way, way back, is associated with that. So yeah, so I think you might be on the right track. Sex and things like this may have been involved because to us, we're actually writing this big article actually. It's going to go up on Graham Hancock's site later this year about this. It's going to go in our forthcoming book as well because we think that's the case. We think that at certain times of year, they were having wild celebrations, you know, wild festivities. And actually, it would have been what you class as an orgy. It's like you watch the Wicker Man, what they do in that, where they kind of do that on Beltane on May the 1st. But we think they might have been doing something at the equinox, and nine months later, on the winter solstice, they're kind of birthing and celebrating birth and rebirth, and the darkness of the time of the year, the reincarnation, all this kind of stuff. You might be on the right track, but I think it might have been more sacred to them and more communal celebration, turnings of the year and things like this, and watching the stars at the same time. Because stars, you know, watching the night sky would have been their kind of TV. It would have been their internet. It's what they would have been doing. And yeah, I agree that they were the same kind of mindset as us. And I also think the reason they were probably of a similar mindset to us is because I think they discovered certain ways to enhance their consciousness, to increase levels of creativity and innovation and this could be related to, you know, even psychotropics and things like this, which is something else we've been looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great points. I guess sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We haven't changed all that much. A tale as old as time. But that is true. Like, even today, if we didn't have all the political baggage and we didn't have the electronic technology, we didn't have the TV or the smartphone, what would we be doing with our time? probably exploring those outer reaches of consciousness through the use of all kinds of entheogens that we would be aware of. So yes. And then when you do that and then you mix it with the fertility ritual, let's call it to elevate it. I'll go back to dragging it out of the mud, I guess. But yeah, I mean, you could see where this would be happening. And the acoustics you mentioned, I wanted to get into that a little more because that's one of those things that 
along with the alignments, it speaks to the real details of the engineering of a space like this. It is a section of your book, but talk to us about the best information we have regarding those acoustics and what that really means. Because people hear acoustics and it sounds kind of uh, provocative, archaeoacoustics. Ooh, that's cool. But, you know, we get readings and those readings actually have implications to people who study this sort of stuff. So it does prove kind of intention. Talk to us about that. The acoustics thing is fascinating to me because this is something that has been known about for a while at places like Newgrange, Stonehenge, even the interior of the pyramids in Egypt, things like this, you know, really famous sites. Even at Avebury, even at Stone Circles, you can have acoustic effects. A good friend and colleague, Steve Marshall, has been looking into this. He's an acoustic engineer, in fact, and he's done a lot of experiments at sites, as as previously as Paul Devereaux. He wrote a book about it called Stone Age Soundtracks. So this is known about, it's becoming accepted in academia now, the acoustic nature of ancient sites. No one for a long time really assumed that they'd be doing it back at the time of Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. And so Andrew Collins, in his early research, realized that Acoustics must play a part of this because the shapes of the enclosures, although I've done new research on this and, and I've found very intricate geometries associated with them, but generally they are oval or elliptical in shape in slightly different configurations. The specific types of shapes of them are beneficial and enhance acoustic principles, and they still use the same principles today when they're designing auditoriums are found in Gebekli Tepe, like different ratios and so forth. So this really fascinated me. So further tests were carried out by these Belgian acoustic engineers. They got access to it way back in like 2004, something like this, and got access to it and actually did acoustic tests and found some remarkable things all resonating with the male human voice and sometimes the female human voice going into certain hertz, certain resonances and other such things. They even got to a point where they were knocking on one of the tall central stones and it felt like it had a kind of resonance. It had a kind of almost like felt like it was hollow. And the fact that they're so shallow, where they're placed, they're not buried in the ground like you get a stone. It's not several feet down. They're resting in these really shallow pits of just a few inches, a few centimeters. And so they could have like kind of been moved and shook and they would have vibrated if there was acoustics taking place in the auditorium at the time or you know in the enclosures there and so there's a lot to be said for that and then they realize as i mentioned you stand in the center between the two big t pillars then they found that was perfect you could turn around and speak at a decent level of volume everyone could hear you equally and this was all tested out and so yeah that is definitely there for sure and i think also, now the research is going towards the effect on consciousness of acoustics and sound and chanting and things like this. And so there's a lot of ideas brewing that these are kind of almost like oracle sites. And the whole stone you find in most of these enclosures could have had someone behind that doing some kind of incantation or something like this. So, yeah, so there's different ideas. But again, we just clutching at what is there to try and make sense of it we don't know all this we don't know they were doing this so you're just trying to back engineer what's available 
to back engineer really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in your section, I have in my notes here that Andrew Collins said that enclosure D at Gobekli Tepe is a four, three ratio ellipses and a four, three ratio relates to musical intervals, the perfect fourth, as they say. And I don't know a ton about music except to say that it is pretty mathematical. So it seems like a, a universal language, so to speak, is I guess what I'm saying. So the fact that they would have figured this out and made things in this ratio is pretty interesting. And from a certain perspective, you could almost say you're painting a picture that it sounds like an ancient space station because people are really blasting off here. And it's only in our modern mind that we like, oh, to get to other places, we need a rocket ship. Actually, consciousness can travel on its own if you do the right things and stack up the right properties, the right entheogens, maybe some ecstatic dance, all kinds of rituals, and then you stack more and more on top. You could really be traveling the universe without any ship at all. So I find that to be a pretty interesting proposition. And you also say here, just to go back to statues and Karahan Tempe, you say they've unearthed remarkable examples of 11,000-year-old stonework and sculptures, including an 11-foot-tall anthropomorphic pillar with eight fingers on each hand. So also, I underlined here, no statue at Karahan Tepe has the standard five fingers? Yes, that is the case. And Now, even though the new statue appears to have five fingers, so the new one is kind of the exception to the rule. But the one you're talking about is, is incredible. I think that structure enclosed AH or something like this is further up the hill at Karahan Tepe. And it's almost like a square enclosure with nice curved corners on it. And it has four of these T-pillars in the center. Now, we must remember these T-pillars are anthropomorphic. So they're like humanoid. Even at Quebec Tepe, we get this everywhere. They kind of have arms coming down the side, you know, really thin, weird arms coming down the side, touching their navel towards their belly button, sometimes the phallus, which is more on 3D statues, more than the T-pillars. And this particular one appears to have eight fingers on each hand, which is very interesting. That's one of four pillars found in that particular enclosure. Now, the head's kind of broken off. It was probably a T-pillar. We're pretty sure of that. And it was embedded into this small bench, so it was being held up quite effectively. And I think it was still standing up when they actually discovered it, like a couple of years ago. So the eight fingers thing, polydactylism, extra digits, things like this. This is something my co-author Jim Vieira has written about, actually. And he's done a lecture about it, where you find that in many of the giant stories, even the myths of giants, you find that as well, going way, way back. And that's one of the traits, one of the genetic traits of, you know, the giant genes and things like this. And so... To me, it kind of makes sense. You know, you have these very interesting people, and they may have been experimenting with scientific biology and things like this we just don't even know about. And so, you know, who knows what's going on? But it feels like this was an elite group who kind of came to that area, maybe not from too far away, and had these innovations and ideas that maybe triggered this whole change in this area. Maybe they were different type of people. They could have been very tall. They could have had extra digits and things like this. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. It kind of goes with the giants, extra rows of teeth. Who knows who was coming down here and playing around with these people. 
But another point about the archaeoacoustics, I didn't want to forget this. Pillar 18 in Enclosure D resonated around 68 to 69 hertz with harmonics of 91 hertz and 138 hertz. Its placement in a shallow pit enclosed the mechanism of vibration. Was it designed to hum in the wind like a tuning fork? A spiraling magnetic field was also recorded between the two central pillars. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they actually recorded some kind of spiraling vortex. I mean, that does speak to its purpose, probably. That's kind of like a a remnant or a whisper of some kind of technology, even if it's just like a consciousness-based technology. Yeah, it was a research called Paulo Derbatolis from Trieste University who did the acoustic research. And while he was there, he got out his very advanced magnetometer testing kit. And he found, and he did this, he did multiple tests from different places in the enclosure. And they all seemed to suggest this kind of strange spiraling, like it's almost like a telluric current coming up out of the ground in the center of enclosure D. And so these magnetic anomalies are something I've been researching for years because Tons of sites are built over natural magnetic anomalies, whether they're positive or negative, whether they're linked with the telluric currents that naturally move through the ground. They're linked to, if they can be enhanced and manipulated, which you can do that with geometry even, you know, with acoustics and things like this. And so they may have had this sort of sense that we don't maybe have, we've kind of lost in our culture. They didn't have things distracting us constantly. They could feel subtle changes in their consciousness and you do get that with magnetism and also these magnetic effects if it was built upon a magnetic anomaly then it may have been chosen the area to build it because of that they might have sensed it was something special it had a strange effect on everybody but also and this is the work of john burke who was unfortunately died a few years ago he wrote the book seed of knowledge stone of plenty and he found that these magnetic anomalies when you place your seeds and grains in them for a while, you know, usually at sunrise when the energies get charged up by the sun and the magnetic field lines kind of increase in strength, it kind of stresses them to a certain point. And you can get electric currents going through it as well, naturally, you know, and it stresses them to a certain point that when you then go and plant them, you get a higher yield of crop because they've been stressed and this is what actually it's like when you do exercise you stress your kind of muscles to get them bigger and stronger so it's the same principle and he found loads of testing all around the world that all these sites had little areas where they collected this natural energy and it would enhance these seeds and grass and you must remember as well with Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe and this is pretty much solid information now the whole agricultural revolution began a few hundred years after they were built you know, literally within a couple of hundred years, they were growing food everywhere and it was being, they were altering different grains, things like this. So that is really interesting. And so it triggered the agricultural revolution that still is with us today, really, with all the grains and everything else. So that is really odd that there happens to be a magnetic anomaly there. Now, I've tried to go into sites you're not really allowed to go in anywhere in most of these places and get magnetic readings. And I'm going to keep working on this, see if we can get access, because I'm sure we're going to find more. And that's why these sites were located where they were. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of this field we might call natural technologies. There's a lot of people 
looking at alternative science and alternative mechanisms that are more in tune with nature that our culture just doesn't really respect. Electroculture is one of these things I've been hearing about where it's pretty basic. You just put a pole and a, a copper wire wrapped around it in the ground and it pulls electricity from the air and then your plants will grow better. And it's like, that is a thing that could have existed 10,000 years ago. There's no moving parts for it. And that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in, reviving those sorts of mechanisms. And the ancient people were probably playing with all sorts of stuff. They were probably feeling these weird energetic differences and saying, hey, let's plant something here. Oh, look at that. It grew more. Or, you know, the orgasm today is still a mysterious thing. We just know it feels really good. So they might have been like, hey, take these mushrooms and then do that. If you think it felt good before, now do it. And then now do it with mushrooms on this place. And now do it with mushrooms on this place while we're singing or banging drums. And it's just like, of course, you'd be exploring the deepest depths of feeling good and projecting consciousness. The vortex, the magnetic vortex does make me think more about that astral travel thing. It also makes me think that is the reasoning for why the constellations and the alignments are so important to them. Because if you talk to just modern astral travelers, they have some pretty incredible stories of what they're able to do. Remote viewing too, throw that in. And if you made a structure, we don't do this today, but imagine making a structure where people with this kind of talent or just anyone who had the ability to do it could amplify that ability of projecting consciousness. It kind of makes me think about one of our colleagues, Gordon White, I think is the one who told me this story, but a little anecdote about an indigenous culture somewhere who was asked about spirits and communicating with spirits. And they're like, oh yeah, we do that all the time. And then they were asked about UFOs and they said something to the effect of, well, we're a lot less interested in the ones who come here on the bus. Meaning like we're more interested in the consciousness to consciousness communication that we have going on here. And the ones that are in those metal little ships, I mean, I guess there's something, but they're not that interesting to us because we're already communicating. And it's just such a flip on our modern culture. We don't think that people in huts in the dirt would have anything to offer. And meanwhile, we're trying to wrestle with our spirits even real. And they're like, yeah, we actually know them quite well. And we communicate with them and they bring us rain and, you know, we uh, honor them and this and that. So, yeah, it's just a weird anecdote. But we need to get a really good base level understanding of our own environment before we can understand a lot of that other stuff, because we tinker around with electronics, but our modern society, I think, is way off the mark in terms of the real natural template that we we have here. And they knew it back then more so. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think they definitely had this natural understanding of everything. They could, I think they were natural dowsers or geomancers. So they could feel these energies without even realizing, you know, they could sense where water was. They could work out the best place to observe the sun, the moon, and the stars from, which actually are essential if you're going to start growing food and domesticating animals and things like this. So, yeah, I think they were doing whatever they could to kind of enhance that. And I think they just had really good intuition and the innovation a lot came from intuition and through probably ingesting certain things that may have been available to them at the time. One of the interesting things is that we know they were brewing beer. There's even talk about wine being created as well, but they were brewing beer. So that's an old state 
possibility as well. But what they didn't realize is that ergo or ergo would grow when they left it too long. The barley went funny and they would suddenly be having LSD beer accidentally. So that could have been an effect. They actually found that at a 14,000 year old cave in Israel where they were brewing beer that they actually found ergo. And so they realized, oh, they were ingesting very strong psychedelics, possibly accidentally, much the same way as, you, you know, you pick a few mushrooms off the dung and put it in your Sunday roast and, and let you know you're tripping the like Fantastic. You know, these kind of things could have accidentally happened, you know, just through natural processes, very much in the, in the line of Terence McKenna, the whole food of the gods principle as well. Mm-hmm. So if we were to zoom out a little bit, how would you compare and contrast Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tempe? I understand they're 20 something miles apart, which is quite far for people who apparently only traveled on foot. If you would think that these sites are connected, maybe people travel between them with no kind of vehicle at all. That's a little bit mysterious on just on the surface there. But what else would you say about the similarities and differences? Assuming most of the audience is aware of Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tempe, I understand, is much bigger. Like, what are some of the similarities and differences? Yeah, well, Gobekli Tepe officially is roughly 200 years older than Karahan Tepe. Although at Karahan Tepe, they have found evidence of hunter-gatherer activities on that hill in the area. No building until, you know, 11,400 years ago. Yeah, Gebekli Tepe, well, they found potentially 20 enclosures. Only a few of them, maybe four or five of them, have been uncovered. Karahan Tepe, they found one large enclosure so far. They've just started uncovering the second large enclosure on the top of the hill, which is where these statues were found recently. But there's lots of small enclosures. And the unique thing about Karahan Tepe is what's called the Pillar Shrine or Structure AB. Now, this is very strange. This is the one with all the kind of upright pillars in this kind of sunken pit, which goes five, six feet down. These pillars are four to five feet high. There's 10 of them carved out of the bedrock, like phalluses sticking up out of the ground or mushrooms. And there's one freestanding one, which is placed in this very low socket, which is like this kind of curved, almost like a serpent coming out of the ground shape. It's got like an eye. It's got these carvings on it. And then on one side of it, you've got this head coming out of the wall, of the western wall, this three times the size human head with serpent scales going down the neck and the mouth open. It's looking towards the porthole stone to the southeast. This is where the winter solstice sun comes in as well and lights up the head on the winter solstice. So that whole area is totally unique. Nothing like that has been found at Gebekli Tepe yet. But considering how little has been excavated at both these sites, less than 5%, we have to consider that more things like this will be discovered. Just what has come out of the ground already is incredible. And to think you've got like a 95% more of that to come out of just these two sites, then you've got like 10 other sites at least which have barely been excavated. But I think the main difference is, as well, not only the pillar shrine, structure AB, you've also got a lot of carving out of the limestone bedrock at Karahan Tepe. So they're literally half the main enclosure, which is 75 feet wide or 23 meters, structure AC, I think, is actually half of it going over to the west, 
as it goes up the rocky hill, they've carved out of the bedrock. So some of the T-pillars are carved and the seats, the benches are carved out of bedrock. And then it goes around into the rest of the circle, they're upright pillars sitting on the bedrock. So that is incredible. So we're talking about hypergeum style carving. That with the pillar shrine, you also got another structure, which is sunken structure AA as well, the pit shrine. So, you know, what is going on? Why were they carving out of bedrock? You know, no one was supposed to be doing that to that extent, that quality, that long ago. And so that's unique to Karahan Tepe, although they've now found elements of that at Cycle Saybirch. They found this remarkable carved panel, which has this another gentleman holding this phallus as well and another V-neck. But they've also found elements of that at the lower levels of Gobekli Tepe, where actually the kind of slabs, if you like, that the T-pillars are slotted into in the center are carved out of the bedrock. And so, yeah, you've got a lot going on, but you've got the similarities. You've got the same T-pillars, the same types of enclosures, similar statues and things like this. But there's a kind of slightly different style to Karahan Tepe, which is kind of intriguing. We need to see more of it coming out of the ground before we can get a full picture of what the hell is going on there. Yes, we do. But that stuff is really interesting. And David Icke would be very pleased to hear that a human face and scales, this association goes back to some of the oldest sites we know. This is kind of like a human-reptilian hybrid kind of illustration to a degree. And that alone on its surface is interesting. This isn't just a modern concept that people came up with. Of course, there's the Naga and there are other things, but for it to go back all this way, I mean, that's amazing. On top of the giant statue, on top of the digits, some statues having an unusual number of fingers. Now we got a a reptilian type statue. And there are other hybrid creatures, to my understanding, across multiple sites, right? Yeah, you get combinations of human and animal. I mean, one of the things that's very prevalent in Tepe is the human and the leopard combination, that you actually get statues actually on display at the museum, where you get a human being almost like with a leopard climbing on top of him, over the top of him. So whether that's some kind of bestiality or whether it's actually a symbol of the leopard as being their totem for that particular site is a high possibility. A lot of serpents at Karahan Tepe as well. But then again, you start looking and you, you can find foxes, canids, and different creatures at all these sites. They're very focused on animals. And I think the leopard is, is the most prevalent one. One of the things we noticed, Andrew Collins is, is really focused on this, is um, actually some of the upright pillars that are carved out of bedrock, the T-pillars carved out on the western wall of the main enclosure. They have what appear to be, it looked like a leopard standing up. I mean, Graham Hancock featured that actually in uh, Ancient Apocalypse, and he described it as possibly looking like a kind of shaman priestly figure wearing a leopard cape, but it actually looks like a leopard pelt hanging down from a belt. So if that's the case, then how big were these people? Uh, You know, if you're having a leopard kind of pelt hanging down, which is relatively small. So, you know, Andrew's kind of focused on that. We kind of got photos and we realized, oh, that's what it could be. So the leopard thing's really strong there. So it's a very, very strange thing. But yeah, you get different creatures. You have like totem poles as well. There's a famous one from Quebecli Tepe, which has serpents going up here, the baby's head. It's like it's popping out of a belly. You've got hands coming down the side. You've got what appears to be some kind of creature on top. Could be a leopard, could be a bear. The face is being kind of carved off it. 
you get similar things at Karahan Tepe and, and the Vali Truri, a site that's been known about since before Gabagni Tepe, actually, where you get similar iconography of a mixture of human with different animals. Yeah, those are head scratchers for sure. Maybe it's some kind of bestiality, but it is a brave man to be messing around with a leopard in such a regard. I think back to some things I've heard about magic. I only know what I read, but obviously there's a lot of lore about the skinwalker. Could they be somehow harnessing the abilities of certain animals and this weird esoteric combining of qualities with the animal world? Or there's also realms of magic where they talk about projecting your consciousness into an animal. There's this whole thing about projecting your consciousness into a hawk or an eagle and being able to see through their eyes. And maybe that's what they're alluding to, that they found a way to project their consciousness into a leopard and run around as a leopard runs around and hunt as a leopard would. I mean, who knows what the limits of that kind of stuff are when you got all the time in the world? Yeah, I mean, it feels like it was a shamanic culture. You can kind of see that pretty clearly. It's it wasn't just art for the sake of it. You could see that there was something profound to them that they had to kind of express in the stonework. And thank God they did it in stone, otherwise we wouldn't be seeing any of this now. And I think that's definitely the case. It's the same with the fertility side of it as well, which may have been a big deal for them. They had to keep the land, the animals, and everything else fertile, the plants, the crops to survive. You know, otherwise they could have died. But with the shamanic side of it, it's something that Andrew's very focused on actually, but it just all makes sense. The symbolism is all there. And you've even got these beautiful stone plates that are found. They are polished, different types of stones. Some of them are two or three feet wide. And they found mainly on the benches around the main enclosure where people would sit. And it feels like these plates were like sacraments would be given out to people. They were sacred bowls. And these were deliberately replaced and put on the benches in between these tea pillars where all these animal and human statues were right next to them and things like this. So it just feels like they were taking sacraments and they were going into shamanic states. Like you say, they were probably connecting with the leopard totem, the serpent, the vulture or the eagle as well, and different creatures, like the canids and other such things. Because, you know, you imagine living back then, you're dealing with wild animals as a threat. So you've got to like, take that on board as well as you know the practical safety side of it so whether they were taming them working with them it seems like they were certainly domesticating some of the creatures out there Mm -hmm. and there even today are still branches of shamanism where the shaman will go into trances and they'll have a designated totem for north south east and west and it'll be leopard or snake or hawk or frog even it's like The spirit embodies the animal, and on the astral plane, they give you information, perhaps, about the person you're trying to heal. And, I mean, it's it's just clear as day that it still exists now, so why wouldn't that have been the case then? And you could imagine a people who are discovering this, even if they've known, they still might not understand why it happens, but the shaman goes into a trance and gets information from Leopard, who then tells them how to heal this condition or save this kid. And then, yeah, why wouldn't you make a statue to leopard (laughs) thanking them? And it seems like the spirits, that is all they really want is our attention is what so many people who engage in these kind of practices 
say is the spirits want to be honored and they want human attention and they want idols and statues that honor them because I guess that's their kind of fuel or they're strengthened by the energy of human attention. So then the reciprocation is that they use their infinite knowledge, if they are in the Akashic record or if they are in the field of energy, they're able to just say, oh yeah, that person needs to eat these two plants in combination with this, brew it up, and they'll be fine in a week. It's like, man, you extract that information. Shaman says, oh, leopard told me. And it's like, yeah, we're going to build a giant effigy to the leopard. We're going to honor this thing that saved my kid or my grandma or this or that. There are cultures and individuals doing that now. So it makes sense that conceptually it could have been going on then too. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes sense. I mean, they were very, I mean, the animal thing is so strong there. Although you do get a few other symbols as well. In Quebecly Tepe, they've worked out, they've kind of counted the different animals carved in each enclosure. And enclosure A, for instance, is the snake is the most prominent one. Enclosure B, you mainly get the foxes. Enclosure C, it's mainly boars, although they've now found an extra one in enclosure D. Enclosure D has more birds than any other animal. And also at Carahan Tepe, it really feels like it's the leopard, the one enclosure they've really uncovered so far. And so, yeah, were different groups? Could it have been different groups coming to these sites? And it was their totem from their village, which they would do their ceremonies in, they would do their work in, they would do whatever in, you know, lots of different ideas have been put in what they were doing inside these structures. And it does really feel like it's the case. In fact, you're getting like the totem style poles with different creatures on them. It does kind of emphasize very much this shamanic element that you find at all these sites. Mm hmm. And so earlier you had said that it seems like there might be up to 40 sites out there now. And I guess a site is somewhat hard to define because some sites have multiple enclosures. So you're kind of just like grouping them in a way that makes some sense. But given what you know about studying this area, traveling to this area, you know, your fingers on this pulse, knowing that they're oftentimes only 5% uncovered. If you had total control of this whole operation and you could focus all the efforts on just one site outside of Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, one of the other ones of these potential 38 other sites, given what the preliminary work shows, where do you think you would focus the efforts for the best yield of mysterious or epic discoveries? There's several sites just southwest or sort of south, sort of west of Quebecly Tepe, Chandler area. One of these is Saybirch, which I mentioned. There's another one just north of there called Ayanlahoyak. There's another one called Yoganbirch and another one called Kakmak Tepe. These are four sites in the same general area. Now, Kakmak Tepe is older than Quebecly Tepe, although they haven't found any tea pillars there. But they found evidence of working in the bedrock and things like this. But what's really, really interesting me is what is coming out of Saybirch. And they've only just started this. We've been going there for a couple of years now. And since we visited, now they've started excavating. And what happened there, which is fascinating, is that we got to know the family. So we're kind of friends with the family now, all the different family members. We stay in touch with a couple of them. And 
They let us in, and they kept this hidden under their house since at least the 1940s. But it may have been, they could like, no, no, we've been there a hundred years. We've known about this for a hundred years. So they found at Sabirch, someone let it slip, it existed. And now the government and the archaeologists are excavating there. They're going to demolish the whole village, though. That's why they didn't want to tell anyone, because they knew this would happen. So they built this entire village called Sabirch over a ancient site, a huge ancient site, as big as Gebekli Tepe, probably. And this has got this beautiful panel relief of these bulls and this man jumping up and down with this snake in his hand or a bowler. And this gentleman kind of with this phallus out, carved in relief in this bedrock carved elliptical enclosure. And we're finding all these other things coming out there now. And to me, that is going to be big news. Now, one of the reasons I'm interested in this is because of the name of the site. Now, Say Birch, it sounds like, Nothing, it kind of doesn't mean anything. But say, S-A-Y, means counting or count. Birch, B-U-R-C, the little thing off the sea, means sign of the zodiac. And birch in Kurdish means tower or watchtower. And so clearly this is an old name. And they say that it's only ever been called this. It's like Gebekli Tepe is always, it goes way back, the name Gebekli Tepe, as does Ketchli Tepe, which is the original name of Karahan Tepe. And then I found out through my contacts there that there was a tower there. There was literally a stone tower once existed at Saybirch. The symbols that are found in Saybirch so far are potentially zodiacal signs. And so it's like, hang on a sec, what the hell is going on here? And so that area there fascinates me. And the fact they're going to have to demolish half a village is sad. And we're going to help, we're actually going to see if we can try and help raise some extra funds for them somehow but what they're finding is equally remarkable and i think there's another site north they're called the Yanlahoyak, which is huge there's like seven mounds there i think six or seven large mounds they found part of a porthole stone they found all these artifacts we got to know the local mayor of the village he showed us around showed us all these artifacts they've already found we found just in this field we were just walking about this broken t-shaped pillar that's never been published anywhere. We're like, what the hell? And like, we, we couldn't believe it. Me and JJ spotted that in like December 2021. And it's still there. We went back. It's still there. I thought, like, why haven't they done something with this? They should like protect this, put it in a museum. And then we, there's another site called Yogan Birch. We've been up there. There's caves there carved out of solid bedrock. There's cut marks all over the place. I mean, you can focus anywhere. And I think you're going to find things equally as impressive as Karahan Tepe and Gebekli Tepe. And the fact that I've just focused on three or four sites out of 12 in one area proves that, I mean, I, I see this as like a massive civilization in beginning 12,000 or so years ago. I call it a super civilization because it's so vast and so unheard of. It shouldn't be there. I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, Sumerian was the first civilization, wasn't it? Or Egypt you know, things like this. No, this is at least twice, three times as old in some cases as some of these civilizations. And to me, they were as advanced as potentially the Sumerians and Egyptians in certain ways. With the astronomy, with the solstices, they were studying the stars, the stonework techniques, the high level kind of shamanism and everything else. You have to accept the acoustics, the geometry, I mean, we haven't even come on to some of the geometries we're finding at these sites now. And they were using specific measurement systems as well. And these are all based upon Earth measures, suggesting they must have measured the Earth. 
And so to me, that's all signs of civilization, high civilization. We even have symbols that are being researched by various people, including my partner, JJ, who believes they had a language. They had a written, this was carved in some of the stones. And so, you know, the fact that so little has been excavated, I mean, we're kind of trying to predict what's going to happen, what's going to come out based upon what's there. And sometimes we're hitting the nail on the head. I think one of the main things which you can't deny is this winter solstice alignment we saw and witnessed in 2021 because the sun comes through the hole and lights up the head. I mean, that's undeniable. I mean, it's actually there. And yet the archaeologists, they won't accept it, even though it still happens today. It would have actually been better back then. It would have looked better. And so I'm going on a rant here by the sounds of it. But actually, I think just focusing on the sites southwest and west of Chandlerfa would be a really interesting start. And thankfully, they've actually started at Sabert. So we're going to start seeing more come out from there soon. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And of these, let's say, 40-ish sites, I mean, it goes on and on, but we're trying to form a little bit of a, a barrier around here. Here's this area, and there's like 40-ish sites. And we talked about where you would focus the excavation if you could. What would you say about the newest site? What is the newest named site that has recently been announced that obviously, because of the nature of it being the newest, they would know probably the least amount about it. But what is the latest of the latest? Well, yeah, I mean, there's sites that have not been excavated yet. They've just announced 12 sites. These are the Tastepola sites. Tastepola means stone hills. It's a big project. It's going to go on for a decade or more, probably for a lot longer than that if they can do it. But, you know, we must understand some of these sites have not been excavated. They've just been announced. So we've actually been out looking at the sites before they've been excavated, and there's no one around, nothing like that. You can just go wandering about, but it's all buried. All these sites are deliberately buried. So I mentioned Saybirch, Ayan Lahoyak, Kakmak Tepe, they're actually excavating that now, and Saybirch, and Yogenbirch. Now, Yogenbirch and Ayan Lahoyak have not been touched, and that surprises me. You've got Tasli Tepe, which is actually on Karakadag Mountain, which is where the first Ancon wheat was ever created. That's like famous for being the kind of sacred mountain of the area where the sort of agriculture really kicked off, which is just a few miles north of Quebec, the Tepe. There's other sites like Harbert Zuvan, which is not too far from Karahan Tepe, and Sefer Tepe, which is north of Karahan Tepe. Now, those have started to be excavated. We have a European team in at Sefer Tepe. We went there, we visited, we got chatting with the archaeologist. A whole bunch of T pillars and enclosures and a few discoveries. Interesting little kind of pendant type thing, which has these indentations on it, which I think there's 13 of them, which could be linked to lunar counting system. But again, very little of that's been excavated. There's a Japanese team at a site called Harbert Zuvan Tepesi. That's really hard to get to. It's in the middle of nowhere. Very little has been excavated, but they have found a statue of a man with a phallus, as you do. They found a couple of other statues there, of T-pillars, things like this. Tasli Tepe, don't know anything about that just yet. I just found a few pendants and other things. You head further east, going up towards the Tigris River area. This is where the super ancient sites seem to be, like Kortik Tepe, Bonchoklu Tala, which we managed to visit. 
these are like twelve to fourteen thousand years old. You know, these are like in the middle of the Younger Dryas sites, and some of them have been excavated a while back. Some of them haven't been touched, and so you've got this kind of we're in the process now. This is the discovery process is happening, and so we go back every year, like twice, three, four times a year just to keep up with what's going on. We've got a lot of friends out there. We've got colleagues. We've got to know a lot of the families who own the land and things like that. We're trying to be friendly with the archaeologists, but I don't think they're too keen on us. We do our best. But yeah, we're just absolutely passionate, fascinated by this. I think you've got to remember, there's only officially 12 sites, and these are generally around the area of Gebekli Tepe, Karahat, everywhere, Shanlurfa. All the other sites along the Tigris aren't part of the Tastepola project. They're separate. There's like Turkish archaeologists working up there, we believe, from the university in like Midyat and other places. The site's already excavated. They're actually currently being excavated again, like Cheyanu I mentioned. And I think there's many more sites than this. I mean, our good friend Chuck, who's passed away a while back, ran this brilliant YouTube channel called CF Apps. He claimed there's loads more. And I looked communicated with him he was doing a lot of research looking into all these academic articles there's an archaeologist called Bartin Selig who's found evidence of lots more sites in the region we visited a site called Hamzan Tepe for instance but we got kind of almost chased away by like wolf dogs in the area and it's kind of built next to a rubbish dump so it's a bit scary that place <laughs> and we couldn't get to the bit we wanted to get to really and to me, there's a civilization there, ancient super civilization, and it's just waiting to be excavated, basically. Yeah, super civilization is what it's starting to sound like. And you alluded to a little friction with the archaeologists. I was going to ask you about that because we only really know what they show, and there's a potentiality that maybe they don't show everything. Yeah, they found a boar statue. Here you go. Look at this. Analyze this. It's painted. Have fun. Well, maybe they found other stuff that is a little more uh, explosive. A lot of these sites are wrapped up in the lore of fallen angels and Nephilim and Anunnaki. And, you know, I don't know how connected we can really say that it is. It's just kind of the stories. It's an old story. So old sites, you'd say, would be kind of connected. But it seems like there might be some kind of parallel with Egyptology. Obviously, it's pretty well known that it's very closely guarded. You can only go in certain areas. Other areas are blocked off. You got to have the special merit badge signed off by the government to even be allowed to know about these places. Is that maybe a concern with some of these other sites that they're only going to show the more mundane and less explosive things they might find? That's a possibility, yeah. I mean, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. And there's a huge area at Gebekli Tepe, which no one's allowed to go to, and they've been excavating it for years. Still, and they won't allow public access. I've asked every time I go there virtually, can I go and have a look? And they're like, no, of course you can't. So we're kind of relying on what we're told, really. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating. I mean, that's one of the things about Karahan Tepe, which was really nice. I've been going there since 2014 with... Andrew Collins and JJ's been coming with us since 2018. And we were visiting there before they excavated it, before there was any interest in it at all. It was known about, but all you could see was tops of T-pillars, like a few inches sticking out the ground all over this huge hill. That was it. 
you know, and one unfinished carved monolith that had been from the quarry on the western hill. And that was it. A few pieces scattered around. One tea pillow, really worn, really small, was found with a serpent on it. Even we weren't sure what was going to be found there back in, you know, when we first visited in 2014. And we got to know the family. They, they kind of like us. We went up this other hill. as a second hill to the north, which is now called Ketchley, which is actually the original name of Karahantepe. And there's stuff up there. There's all these caves. There's these rock-cut square areas and things like this. And now that's out of bounds. You can't go there, and you can only go to certain parts of Karahantepe. And so it's very, very restrictive, and they don't want you seeing things before they announce it, things like this. But to be honest with you, they're doing excellent work, you know, and they're working hard at Karahantep. We've been there in the mornings when they're kind of arriving and working. So they're really going for it. And I think most of the stuff is going to come out. You know, it may take time. There could be political, could be religious reasons. We don't know. But we are very kind of clear, straight. We're just investigators, researchers, writers. We don't make too many wild claims. I mean, the winter solstice thing that me and JJ discovered has ruffled feathers for sure because they could have found that if they'd been there and looked at it when we did, but they didn't, you know, and we did. And so, and now they've even shortened the walkway. So even if you go there today, you can't see that side of the head that gets lit up. And you're like, oh, it's a kind of stretch around or run around there, leave a camera there on time-lapse or something. And that's pretty solid. That winter solstice thing's pretty solid. It's kind of undeniable because it can be witnessed. It's not like it's a theory or a hypothesis. This is absolute solid kind of thing that can still be seen on the winter solstice today. So that makes it really intriguing and hard to deny. And also, even the top archaeologists there get asked about that on TV interviews, and they kind of, you know, have to kind of accept that something might be going on, you know, this, that, and the other. And also, it's also like researchers like me get, and, and others get classed as fringe theorists. We're not archaeologists. We don't have the academic credentials. And so that is generally the kind of place we're pushed into when it comes to their perspective. But we have such a strong passion for this stuff and such a high interest. And we're just like, you know, seeking the truth, just like I'm sure the archaeologists are. So we're all on the same path fundamentally is that we don't have certain letters after our name and they do but at the end of the day you know what comes out of the ground comes out of the ground and to make discoveries like the winter solstice thing was a real blessing because for all we know if we hadn't have accidentally turned up this is thanks to jj really she kind of insisted we go at this time and then it, a load of serendipitous events kind of pushed us to go first thing in the morning because it's the only time we could really go before these officials were going to turn up and this that and the other and that made us go there at sunrise, and then we witnessed it. We're like, hang on a sec. We didn't even know it was going to be there, you know, because even on, even if you try and study it on Stellarium or like, you know, an astronomy program, you wouldn't see it because it doesn't start to 10 minutes after sunrise. So there's lots of little things like that, little coincidences and almost getting guided to these places at a specific time. And even when we went there in May this year, we were able to locate a whole bunch of carvings that have never been recorded just because of the exact position of the sun at that time of year and that time of the day on that day of the year. And we were like, whoa, we've looked at those stones before. We haven't seen them. And so there's little things like that. And that makes me think that 
these 3D relief cards are very much focused on light and like the movement of the sun will bring out certain things at certain times of year. And that would then be part of that ceremonial activity, which may have lasted all year round at the site, with the solstice being one, the equinox being another. Because even we went down the, the September equinox as well, and we had to go there when all the archaeologists were there, so we had to do it covertly a little bit. But there was, we believe there's an equinox alignment to the east, and we believe there's actually a whole channel carved out of bedrock going to the east from the pillar shrine that the head is more or less looking at. But you can't see the channel because it's filled in with rubble. You can just see the start of it at the edge of the pillar shrine. And so I made a little video about this, and it features in this article we're going to publish. And I think I mentioned it in the book as well. So that is interesting because we find that to the east, on the equinox, spring equinox more so than others, you get not only the rising of the sun, you get the rising of Leo in the sky, which is part of the procession of the equinoxes. Now we see Pisces rise every two or so thousand years. But Leo also could have been a leopard as well. And so a leopard symbol may have come from that. And they may be marking that on the equinoxes. And so that you've got these things to consider as well. So there's lots of ideas that are brewing that are absolutely fascinating. And I just can't wait for more of it to be excavated. Yeah, that's a lot of interesting stuff. I like the idea of being guided. seems like the ancients want their excellence to be known. And they'll take the people that they think deserve to know or will amplify their excellence to the rest of the world and they'll guide them along. And that's a beautiful thing. And kudos to you and JJ for discovering that alignment. That is a really nice feather in your cap. It seems like these discoveries and excavations will be going on probably beyond both of our lifetimes, but you'll always be able to say that you discovered that. And even if these archaeologists don't have nefarious intentions, some of what you just said, it speaks to the fact that they have mental blockages in some cases to even recognizing what they might be looking at because these people couldn't possibly have been as advanced or as cognitively competent as we are today. It's just not possible. So clearly they were just drawing some little squiggle. And obviously you look at it from a different perspective. And that's why I'd like to see more of the alternative researchers become the primary researchers. I guess one of the things that comes to mind that they would never disclose is if they found a giant skeleton in one of these places and you would know best that these are the things that don't really reach the surface, let's say, or they're not on the Discovery Channel show. Well, I'm just curious, who really funds these excavations? Is it just the local government or is it more like something akin to the Royal Society or some academic societies of some type? I think it's mainly a government program. I think Testepler is. They have big events and officials going to sites to when they make discoveries, they can all see them, but the public can't. So I think it's now a governmental thing. They're really pushing the tourism thing as well. They want more people to visit and experience these sites. They call it zero point in time is the kind of tagline. And I've got a huge amount of respect for all the people working on it because stuff is happening. You know, finally it's happening. Stuff is coming out of the ground. 
some parts might be blocked off. You know, they want to protect the sites. They're worried about stuff being vandalized. They've had looters go to sites and steal things in the past and stuff like this. So I can understand their trepidation. And we are, you know, hugely respectful when we go to these sites. We never take anything away with us. We never touch anything we're not supposed to. We try and keep within the rules as best we can. You do accidentally cross that line occasionally, you know, if uh, it's not clear. But I think when it comes to the archaeologists, you look at Klaus Schmidt, who passed away some years ago now, who was the original excavator. He was talking about the Anunnaki. He was talking about, are these the watchers who built this? Is this linked with the Garden of Eden, the Dooku Mound, things like this? He was kind of really open-minded. His book is well worth getting. He's just written one book about Gebekli Tepe. Really interesting. So he was quite open-minded, and he very much saw them as temples. That was very much his focus. And that resonates with me. I think they had, definitely they were temples, but they were probably multi-purpose temples. Nowadays, since the new archaeologists have taken over, there's another perspective they're kind of focusing on, and they want them to be domestic dwellings. The whole thing is like a domestic dwelling. Then these enclosures aren't temples. They're community spaces. That's what they now call them. And so there's a different perspective, a different agenda being played out with less of the spiritual kind of religious connotation associated with these sites. But then you get statues like the ones turning up at Karahan Tepe, where these are clearly shamanic statues and fertility statues and other such thing. How can they be associated with some kind of domestic dwelling? It doesn't make sense. And we get a sense because they found all these smaller structures around the main enclosure at Quebecly Tepe, these small square kind of enclosures, even had roofs on them and climbing the roof and things like this. There's loads of these have been found there now, and they claim these are this where people live. But actually, these could be where pilgrims would stay and work at the site whilst they were there, like on retreat or something. Because each of these square structures, these rectangular structures, had a small T-pillar within them. You know, why would you put a T-pillar up inside a small domestic home? It doesn't make any sense. So we get a sense they might be more for you know smaller rituals for pilgrims coming to the site. And they found all these artifacts saying they were preparing food and grinding crops, grain and things like this. So they say, oh, it must be domestic. And, uh, and well, actually, no, that could be the pilgrims coming in and doing things. So there's different agendas playing out about the perspectives on you know what these sites really were. But they're so monumental, they're so impressive, and the art is so abstract and remarkable for this era that you can't just claim, like, enclosure de Gebekli Tepe is someone's house. You know, it would be like a, a mansion, you know, if it was. And it doesn't fit. So there's a lot of different ideas coming forth about the sites now. And the archaeologists have their own perspectives. We have different perspectives. But we're not claiming we know everything. You know, we're just, from our experience of studying the ancient cultures, that's just the ideas we come up with. We put them forward as possibilities rather than fact. Yeah, this is all just so interesting. You've thrown out a lot of names of sites I haven't even heard of. And before we go, I just wanted to mention this section you have in the book on three sites I shouldn't even try to pronounce. But let's say... Keunu, Kilisink, and Girku Tepe. And it's subtitled 
alien statues, goddess figurines, and skull buildings. You got to tell us a little bit about this. I'm curious about alien statues. You do say that Kayunu Tepsi is a place where hundreds of human skulls have been uncovered, some of young people indicating ritual rites might have taken place there. But what can you tell us about the alien statues you're referencing here in this subtitle? Yeah, the alien statue. Yeah, I mean, that is the best subtitle in the book, actually, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, that was a place called Kalisic. They're not sure exactly where this was found. I think it was in that region. It's kind of north of the whole area, towards the Euphrates, near where Navali Churi once was. Yeah, and they found this really cool, really odd-looking statue. It's like a few feet tall. But if you look at the image, it's got like weird little kind of skinny arms pulling up some garment with a big hole. So it's got this feminine element to it. His head looks like a kind of weird face. And then he's got like this huge head going back with these skinny, weird arms kind of coming down the side, zigzagging down. And God, it looks like Alien from the movie Alien franchise. So that, even though it's probably not supposed to be an alien, because it could be a hood he's wearing. They often have statues where they have double-headed, like one face, sorry, double face, one face on the back, one face on the front. You actually get hairstyles in that part of the world that women wear where their hair is held up and they have a garment over it and it looks like that. And so, yeah, there's lots of ideas about that. But that could be what the top to the T-pillars also represent because you don't see the faces on the T-pillars. They're blank. You only see the kind of anthropomorphic bodies of the humanoid features of statues. But yeah, the Kalisic thing is very, very interesting. Cheyanu, I mentioned earlier, is further north, and they found this building called the Skull Building. They found evidence of all these skulls and skull fragments, quite a lot of them, and they found children's skulls as well. So they think this could have been a sacrificial area they were doing this in. This was much more of a kind of site where people lived, because it was next to the river. There's a stream coming off the Tigris near there as well. Whereas sites like Beckley Tepe and Karahan Tepe aren't near any rivers or streams. The only water they get is from what they collect. So this is another reason why I don't think they're domestic sites. Domestic sites tend to be near water sources that flow by. But yeah, and there's also like, you know, at Gertrude Tepe, there's just dying to be excavated as well. They've actually found this goddess figurine there which this is one of the later sites of the whole culture. They found a goddess figurine there, which looks like what you find in Malta and Gozo, which I find really intriguing because there's been some new research done out there by a remarkable author called Lenny Rijic, who's written a book about Sirius, I think it's called The Sirius Star of the Maltese Temples. And we were with her actually last March in Malta, looking around sites there. She is convinced that they were following Sirius in the sky. And actually, when she reoriented all the sites to where Sirius would rise, all the dates shifted back of the sites, some to the era of Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. So even the Maltese sites could be much, much older. And the fact you're finding the same goddess statues there is, again, another interesting feature, which was obviously prevalent in Malta more so than other places. But yeah, you get sites like these. I mean, Gertrude Tepe and Kalisic have been known about for a long time as a Chianu. They've been known about for quite a long time, but no one really realized their significance until relatively recently. I love it. Well, man, I could do this all day. It is about that time. We got to start doing the the wrap-up stuff. So you obviously got the new book out. You also have the conference every year, and you got these tours that you do. 
Tell the people what they need to know about getting involved in any one of these ways. Yeah, well, the new book is coming out this October 2023 is Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, the world's first megalith. It's published by Wooden Books. It's mainly in Britain and Europe at the minute, but you can order it from woodenbooks.com in other countries. It's going to be coming out officially all around the world in time, different language editions and things like this. So that's kind of, we've been working on that. The artist for that was Dan Lish. I want to give him credit. He's done some brilliant artwork for it. And Andrew and JJ helped a lot with that. I'm John Mark, I know my publisher. And yeah, we do run tours there. This is something we would do. Yeah. I mean, we kind of have to, really. That's the way we can actually fund our research expeditions as well. It enables us to stay on at sites or go there earlier and actually research. We're not megalithomania. My company isn't funded. We kind of do everything ourselves. So we kind of rely on income to help our research and time to write books and make videos and things like that. And every November, we run the Origins Conference in Wiltshire, England. That takes place early November every year. A lot of this information we'll be talking about today goes into that. It's the Origins of Civilization Conference. And we run a big megalithomania conference every May, the first weekend of May. We do like two days and then four days of tours as well. So it's like a whole week of activities. And yeah, we run a bunch of other tours, you know, mentioned Malta, Orkney and other places, but all the information's on megalithomania.co.uk or they can search me out, just Hugh Newman. Love it. Man, well, Hugh, you are the man. This has been a lot of fun, really educational as to what we're discovering out there. And I hope to see you on a tour one day, but until then, take care. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Good to talk with you. Heck yeah, higher side chatters. Heck yeah. Hugh Newman is the man, and a lot of us probably have a certain picture in our heads of what Gobekli Tepe looks like, given the research we've been hearing about for the last decade or so, and now that's been radically recontextualized. I'd never even heard of Karahan Tepe before this. Pretty exciting stuff. I know that it might be hard to square with the new chronology timeline revisionist folks, but these sites have to fit in somewhere. And I like that they found giant-sized statues in the area. Hugh is obviously very excited about that, given his previous work. I mentioned this before, but when I was on the Armenia tour with Graham Hancock and this team of local researchers headed by this guy, Vazgan, he slipped in more than once that in some of the areas we were checking out, giant bones were found. Graham would roll his eyes and say, I'm interested in giant ideas, not giant people. But I think he's come around to the general idea now because he's had Hugh as his author of the month before, and I think Hugh might be author of the month again in December. But Vasgan had no context for previous research people on the tour might have done or what we might know. He just said it pretty casually, and I think I caught at least one of those moments in the tour video that I put up, which is something else I've been thinking about. I am going to go ahead and just put out those tour videos for everyone. It's been a plus bonus for a long time, but it was something I did seven years ago, even though I still don't hear anything about these sites, even though Armenia borders Turkey. But in 2024, I'm going to make a few changes that strip down all the extra stuff like the forum and the cover songs and just open it up because I know what Plus members want is just the interviews themselves and that's really it. 
Even the joint session episodes, I can see the numbers. Nobody cares about those, and they were taking me a lot of time. I'll nail a lot of that stuff down later, but because it's relevant to the ancient world and enthusiasts of material like the stuff we covered today, you can now go to my YouTube channel and watch all three of those videos. I think the first two are 40 minutes and the third one is 20 minutes, but it's a lot of stuff and a lot of sites were covered. Karahunge is pretty interesting, but I think the most interesting is Davin, the buried pyramid. That's got to take the cake. But since the YouTube channel is on its last legs anyway, with another couple of removals and another strike, I guess before I get completely banned, I would like to let more people check that out if they're interested. You can find the playlist third row down on the front page now. But kudos to Hugh for doing this work, and I appreciate him updating us on the latest findings. I wasn't really trying to be facetious with the comments about maybe these were ancient sex clubs. I just think sometimes we put a lot of highbrow, intellectual, esoteric framing on what might have been pretty basic human activity. How many statues of guys holding their dicks do you need before you think, hey, maybe people fucked here? It doesn't explain the astrological alignments and the animal carvings, which are also thought to be constellations. But I think we walk by a lot of stuff today that isn't all that important, but if they dug it up, in 12,000 years, and it was all they could find, it would seem a lot more special from their perspective. Either way, it's all fun to think about. Obviously, the ancients overall were a lot more sophisticated than Western school books give them credit for, but savages and cavemen is a pretty low bar to clear anyway. But if you haven't seen the wooden book series that this is a part of, give it a goog. They are really well made and creative in a time where that's mostly gone by the wayside with mass production and all that. Digital production even more so. No one owns anything anymore. And of course, his conferences are some of the best for this kind of stuff. And if I ever did get out on another tour, I think his group would be the one I'd like to be in. Of course, if you like the free first hour, dive into the second with a plus membership. It's that time of year that if you don't know what to ask for from people who want to get you some kind of gift, hey, six months of THC plus is 50 bucks. A year is around 100. Those are nice round numbers for gift givers. And we have a robust gifting system built into the website as well. You can get yourself twice as much content. Give someone in your life a headache-free gift idea and allow my children to eat. I can't think of more of a win-win-win. But in the Plus Show here, we got into a lot of the more esoteric stuff, the alignments, the archaeoacoustics, the geometry and sophisticated measurements, Daring Kuru, and a few other sites that are kind of around that area that are now just being really discovered. I think this was in the first hour, but it is very interesting that of the anthropomorphized or human statues they've found at Karahan Tempe, none of them have the standard five fingers. What is going on, people? But yes, right there at the top of your show notes, you got two links. One takes you to the sign-up page right through my website where you can then get access to not only all the two-hour full shows, but the RSS feed that you can use in any of the podcasting apps you typically would use. And then you have the Patreon link, which is really there 
for those who want to use Spotify to listen to THC Plus because they are partners and thus you can do that. And in higher side news, I'm really just trying to get through the holidays with my sanity intact. I was going to try to do another script outline auction. Again, end of the year, gift giving. It just seemed to fit, but I ran out of time. Because even if I set it up today, the auctions take 14 or 21 days to complete. So nobody would really get any of these things for Christmas. And I guess I'm just going to try again later. And another thing that I want to start doing in wrap-ups is talking about the previous episode and how it was received, or at least mentioning the plus member rating on the website. Joe Atwell is sitting at a 4.8. It really doesn't get much better than that. I'm glad people were largely okay with such sensitive material for the most part. Although not everyone was, I did post one of the emails I got on the social media channels, and I made the joke on Instagram that after they ranted at me, it said at the bottom, sent from my iPhone. And you really, you can't trust a person who still uses the stock email signature, can you? But it was definitely an episode that sparked a lively comment section, and I don't want to put anyone on blast because plus comments are really supposed to be blocked from public view, which allows people a little bit of a barrier to maybe say how they really feel. But one member did say that it was incredibly distasteful and disrespectful to the families and all those who suffered, even though no one suggested that people didn't suffer. I'm just open to considering that some of the biggest world events of all time might have had their narratives massaged a little bit. They said, how would you feel if your family was murdered and then people were doubting that it happened in the way that it was said to have happened and that kind of thing? And this is a criticism I have faced hundreds of times. This sort of, it's disrespectful to the dead and the families who lost people and I have to push back whenever it happens. Because if the goal is to push and pull on the narratives and examine some of these inexplicable facts, as Joe put it, in the name of seeking the raw truth of a situation, how can that be disrespectful to the dead? It's the opposite. If I die and they tell you it was a suicide or a random mugging, believe me, me nor my wife would be disrespected if you dug deeper to find out for yourself. I'd be insulted if you didn't, actually. But the bigger point is that nearly every conspiratorial topic involves some dead people. False flags, assassinations, mass shootings. There's always someone or a large number of people who sadly are killed in these sorts of events. You can't just say, well, this one is off limits for me because it hurts the feelings of the families to have the mainstream narrative challenged. Because then we'd never dig into anything, right? You can't ask who really killed JFK. You can't ask questions about 9-11. You can't consider there might be a deeper story to the death of Kurt Cobain or Tupac. To me, that's an argument that the system seeds to keep people from investigating. Think about the events of the last couple of years and how dangerous medical misinformation was. Although when I grew up, it was commonplace to go get a second opinion. So this idea of one ultimate truth from some medical ministry is not even a rational position. Oh well, not really the time or place for a big rant, but I just don't like the we can't consider some potential fuckery 
in the way things are described to us because the families would be offended argument. I don't want to offend any families. I don't want to dishonor any dead. But asking uncomfortable questions and seeking the truth beyond what we're told usually offends somebody, no matter what you're talking about. So I'm glad this particular person wasn't bothered when we talk about 9-11 because maybe they don't know any New Yorkers and they weren't really that bothered by the investigators who came here to talk about their work on Sandy Hook because they probably didn't know anyone who lived in that area. But maybe they have a Jewish great aunt, so now you can't talk about Israel-Palestine or World War II or any of that stuff. I think you see what I'm getting at, but hey, overall, a 4.8 means the vast majority are on that page, or at least think Joe brought up a lot of stuff worth considering, and I appreciate that. But I'm going to read off some of the upcoming events and get out of here. We got December 2nd, High Springs Brewing Company in High Springs, Florida. I will make it out there one of these days. December 3rd, Mount Cotton, Australia at Venman Bushland Park. They're getting together. Bring a chair, a mug for tea, food to share, and good vibes. December 5th, we got something going on in Nashville at Monday Night Brewing. December 7th, we got the Flame International Restaurant in LA doing their monthly meetup. And December 22nd, this is interesting, we have an event in Bulgaria. It looks like this is an event that was put on the THC calendar as well as the No Agenda calendar. I'm totally down for this kind of stuff. I love when the tribes get together. The overarching goal is not to brand these meetups as Higher Side Chats events, but really just to allow local people who are into this sort of material, no matter what show they get it from, to unite locally and make themselves more resistant to operations in the future. So that's a beautiful thing. Go to HiresideMeetups.com to get more details on any of these events. And if you didn't hear about one near you, you can also make one very easily. Whew. But I hope you liked this break from the conventional topics everyone is weighing in on and appreciate me hitting you with something different. So big thanks again to Hugh for taking the time. I've done my part. Your move, history hiders, political permit and permission roadblockers and excavation interrupters. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit 
Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats. Yeah.